From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's January 20th, 2016. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Ed Lockman is one of the most acclaimed cinematographers working today. Over the past 30 years, he has collaborated with renowned directors like Sofia Coppola, Steven Soderbergh, Ulrich Seidel, and more. He's worked with director Todd Haynes for his last three features, including this year's Carol, which was just nominated for six Oscars, including for Best Cinematography. During last fall's New York Film Festival, where Carol was an official selection, Lachman joined festival programmer Amy Taubin for one of our HBO-sponsored free talks. Their conversation touched on topics like his working relationship with Haynes, his approach to shot composition, and working with film versus digital. To hear more discussion about Carol, check out episode 58 of The Close-Up for our HBO Director's Dialogue with Todd Haynes. But for now, here's Ed Lockman in conversation with Amy Taubin. Hi there, this is Alison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theater is turning 25 next year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manola Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long-overdue renovations that will make this great theater even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org WRT25. We're going to talk very fast because we have a lot to cover, or I'm going to talk very fast. Um, And let's start with a very general question. How do you conceive of the role of cinematography in film? And related to that, how do you work with specific directors? Carefully. You know, people have said, I haven't said it, that uh, the relationship between a director and a cinematographer is a marriage, but I I thought about it, and it's more like a dance partner. You pick the same music, but you have to find the right steps together. And not all directors are visual, so you have to find your common ground with a director. And I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of visual directors, and I think they... You know, that, that's been a, a big support for me, that I have people that understand that images are about ideas and they're not just about aesthetic-pleasing images. And um, because for me, always, it's the idea that creates the image. And I, I could relate, well, like one story about that. I, I worked with Jean-Luc Godard on a film, and uh, it was Anatomy of a Shot. It was a small film. And he said to me, we were on the set of Zoetrope Studios, and he said to me, uh, keep everybody in the center of the frame. And I thought, that's going to be strange for the composition, because he wanted to cut from one person to the next. And it was like, 
a dancer or a grip, a dolly grip, or Victoria Storaro, or or uh, Francis Ford Coppola. So when you would cut, you would always see the same as a, a character, a person in the center of the frame, and so he was creating that world between the, those that composition, and that made me think about how strong ideas are to create images. And when I work with someone like Todd Haynes, and we're going to reference some of his films, he's someone that always uses cinematic language to comment, not for just uh, aesthetic reasons. When he used, let's say, in Far From Heaven, uh, Douglas Sirk, he's really referencing something that Sirk was commenting on and middle-class values. He came from Germany out of Brechtian theater, and he was using a popular form of melodrama to comment on the social mores of the American middle class. So, in a way, Todd was doing the same thing, seeing if in, you know, five or 2002, we still would dealt with racism and sexuality if we felt we were superior to that. We felt superior in the stylization, but ultimately what the film had to say are issues we still deal with. So I won't won't go on. (laughs) Do you want to do the first clip from Far From Heaven and look at it now? All right, yeah, we could do that, sure. Okay, so let's have this clip from Far From Heaven. So, I mean, there, you know, we're referencing Douglas Sirk and, and... you know, his photography with Russell Meddy and his stylization was this mannered, um, highly uh, stylized look. And um, what, what, what really is behind that and what Todd was playing with is the idea of repression by beauty. The surface uh, beauty of things is also can be a form of repression for these people. They can't live up to the expectations of what the world that they're surrounded by with their hidden agendas. And so that, that's why we were referencing, it wasn't just for an aesthetic reason, we were referencing Douglas Sirk. It was, Sirk was also using that to um, enter into a middle class world. And so he was in a certain way being critical of it. And he wasn't understood at the time either. But uh, I just wanted to be really, I mean, this is a really interesting clip because there are two aspects of the film that happen. Uh, One is the kind of underworld and the really expressionist part of Cirque, which is where he is going to end up doing the gay pickup and that kind of really dark shadowed. And then you come back to her world, which is slightly more like bright, happy people, but not really. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it's, I mean, what was so impressive to me about that film was that you had these two subjectivities, and those two subjectivities were embodied in the cinematography that related to each of their experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, he was playing with still the idea of a film noir. He was isolating. The the characters are always isolated in um, doorways, through windows, uh, 
banisters of uh, the stairs. So he, he's never allowing the, the, in fact, there's only really one close-up in the film, and that's at the end with Raymond, the uh, African-American uh, gardener, where they have to leave each other, and the camera tracks slowly in. And so, in a way, in the, in the um, idea of, when I, well, I realized something about Cirque when I looked at the films, was he shot these films, they were called weepies, that they were like, you know, soap operas. Uh, he shot these very quickly. They were shot like in 18, 20 days on a back lot of Universal. So I realized the, vil the visual grammar, was, which was very interesting, was he would do these uh, masters, moving masters, you know, uh, tracking with them. And then he would just punch in for a closer shot. Well, he did that for economic reasons because he didn't have all the time to like set up different angles and that's the way he could make his day. But it also, he created that language that kind of worked towards the, what the subject was. In other words, what I'm trying to say is sometimes the necessity of how you shoot things create the stylization of what you're doing. And, and well, anyway. Um, how long did it take you to shoot? Was the Far From Heaven shoot? It was about 35 days, mm -hmm. which and was still quick for a period film. The difficulty in this film was we were on real locations, and I was trying to make it look like it was shot in a back lot of Universal, a studio film. So I had to try to control the exterior world for the interiors so they felt artificial. Everything I did I tried to do was create a certain artificiality. Like it, when we'll look at some other references of like Mildred Pierce or um, even Carol, the, the, the idea there was to be naturalistic, to document something of the period, not through cinema, but through the, the period that it existed in. In Mildred Pierce it was the Depression. So we went against the film noir techniques of the original Mildred Pierce that was done like, uh, you know, with a murder and, you know, um, um, flashbacks. And we shot it, you know, we referenced really the book. It became more a psychological study of the mother and the daughter. And so Todd's idea was let's shoot it like a documentation, not a documentary, but a documentation of this relationship in that period of time and their struggle to survive. There, I mean, a third person comes into this. There's you, there's the director, and there's the production designer. So I am curious about your relationship on any of these films to the production designer. And well, they're the first person I make my friends with <laughs> because it's what I put in front of the screen that's so important. And it's so important to me, like, what the color palette is. And Todd and I, or any director I work with, I try to shoot tests before we shoot because it's so important to me. And also, like, what I shoot when I'm on the set. Like, I'm constantly taking things out of the frame because the frame and what you put in the frame is, is the stylization of the look, you know. And... And what you see by eye isn't the way the camera sees things. So it's very important, even the person, the on-set dresser, and how my relationship was them, because I'm moving th objects around in spatial relationships in the frame to create 
images. You not only do that with the actors, but you do that also with the objects. So I worked with Mark Freeberg, who's a wonderful production designer, and he did a, a great job on this. Um, I remember going to that set and seeing the drops, the painted drops of the trees and the color patterns, which was just extraordinary, yeah. Well, I, I like to work with like uh, two color, uh, in, I work a lot with gels and color temperature. So I like to work with an advancing color and a receding color. So I get more depth out of the image that way. And um, so obviously I want to understand what's in the set in the color because I play with gels off of that. And I certainly did in this film, I played with gels off of the colors in the set. Um, I think we should go on and look at a very different film by Todd Haynes. I'm not there. Uh, so is the clip. So the conceit here was, how do you tell a story about Bob Dylan? And, um, you know, usual biopics are the private life always suffers from the public life. And so Todd's brilliance was that he wanted to reference his creative life. And how do you do that? Because Dylan is always reinventing himself, uh, rejecting his former self, and moving on. So his idea was to create Dylan in these different permutations, right? So um, we, we uh, reference, and then the next level that Todd is interested in is Dylan is like an actor. He's, he's, he's reinventing himself like an actor. And the 60s and 70s culture influenced him as much as he influenced the culture. And um, so we, we reference different cinematic language of the 60s and 70s. The French New Wave, we reference Masculine and Feminine of Jean-Luc Godard. And then in Italy, it's uh, the modernist of uh, post-neorealism of uh, Antonioni and, and Fellini, which, you know, were delving into a more subjective world for their characters. And then um, he's also referencing later in the Richard Gere character, the um, anti-hero Western of the 70s, you know, like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Butch Cassidy the Sundance Kid, and actually a film that um, uh, Garcia, what was the, the one that Dylan was in? He, Dylan oh. was, Pat Garrett and Billy, I always forget that. Pat Barrett and Billy the Kid, right. And so then we, we reference the cinematic language of each of those periods. So the Heath Ledger character who's going through the breakup with his wife, we're referencing um, Godard and you know his sexual politics. And then uh, for Richard Gere is, you know, he's fleeing his urban and his popular uh, culture and trying to re regenerate himself when he goes to Woodstock and when he goes country. And then the Christian Bale is when he finds, uh, you know, he becomes born again. And that we really reference something that was kind of strange for me because we reference Say Amen Somebody a documentary that I shot with George Neumberg about gospel music. So that was, 
you know, the, the, the idea could have been easily, let's reference uh, Don't Look Back, the Penny Baker, a documentary. But what, what Todd said to me is, you know, he realized that a documentary about Bob Dylan still was a way, a, a distance from him, that he wanted to enter the interior uh, concepts of his, of his work. And that, that brings, I guess, another point is of what, for me, image is or cinematography is or how we use cinematic language is in, in writing, you can show place. Um, no, I said it wrong. In, in film, you can show place, but it's much harder to enter the interior world of the characters, and that's what I'm always trying to do with the director how we enter the interior world of the characters, where in writing, in, in a, a novel, it's much easier to enter the, in the interior world of, the, uh, of a character and say how they think and feel, but you spend pages or sentences describing place. So it's the exact opposite. And the other thing about images for me is it's a nonverbal form of communication and that's why I respond so well to films that relate their ideas through images to reinforce their story. Like today I saw The Assassin and how brilliant that film was. And when he spoke, Hoshoshin, when he spoke, um, you saw how he referenced what he understood about the world that these characters inhabit in. And those became visual touchstones, like there's silk fabric that he's shooting through in the house. So you, you could think, oh, that was just a beautiful visualization of, of that he found that. But no, he, he said in this dynasty, the 8th century dynasty, silk was the most important commodity. So he, he used that as his reference to create the image and it has a certain richness to the storytelling. So. Things that's extraordinary about Mildred Pierce, of course, is that it's TV, and you had a tremendous amount of material that you had to get done very fast, so can you talk a little bit about that, but also about all the shooting through glass and windows? Um. Well, one, I've worked with the same crew for almost 30 years, so everything becomes a support system for me. And I worked with a gaffer for 30 years, my grip, and the operator, so that, that's a big help. And we've all worked with Todd before. Um, but what we discovered in, in this project, we wanted to shoot, we, we were trying to hold on the film. I've always shot with film with Todd. And so, um, Todd Haynes. And so we um, told the HBO that it would be, uh, which it is, cheaper to shoot and film than digitally. <laughs> and, uh, oh, 16, so that's all right. So we got the chance to shoot in Super 16. And, but it was, there were other reasons why we wanted to shoot in Super 16, because we wanted to reference this story that happens during the Depression. And we wanted to feel, again, like the hardship and the, the feeling of the film grain 
that would capture that world in its in its soiled way, not not in a not in a Circean way, not in this high gloss way. And uh, we referenced early color photography. We looked at a lot of Farm Security Administration. You know, actually, Christine Vachon's father was a photographer at that time, Jean Vachon. And um, but there were other Ben Shaw, and there were other. Uh, people experimenting with color film back then. And so we referenced that kind of feel. And we thought, well, it's just going to be on television, but we showed it at Venice through a DI, through a digital intermediate, and we were so astounded by the feeling of what 16 millimeter, that still negative in 16 millimeter, has for me a greater range. The, the color... The, co the way colors mix in film can't be reproduced digitally. It's a, it's a, a digital world, it's pixel fixated on one plane, and your lights, shadows, and your colors are all on this one uh, electronic you know, frame. And for me, film, is, it's like an etching. You know, there's RGB, three layers, and these three layers are, are etched by light. And light also projects the image. And even if you go through a DI, a digital intermediate uh, process to complete the film, you still capture the feeling of what, how colors mix. I, I can't get colors to, to play with each other the way they do in film. And the exposure latitude is different. And partly that is because finer grain with highlights and, and bigger grain with lower light and, and the way the, the, the grain uh, responds to different color, that I find it has much more of a, a mixture. And, and again, I looked at uh, The Assassin today, and I, I realized something else, because I'm always thinking about how do you articulate the difference between film and digital? And I even discovered that uh, I looked at um, actually Far From Heaven on um, on a... 2K or HD, and then I looked at it on a, a DVD, which is a lower resolution, maybe about four or five hundred. And um, what I discovered is, and I, I, I think this is true, when you look at film and there's a focus at some place in the frame, the way it falls off in, in um, focus is much more pleasing to our eye. What happens digitally is it makes everything, even if it's out of focus, look sharper. It, it seems like it loses its roll off, to use a digital expression. It, you, it, 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 and I find you, the depth, it's a strange thing to say, but by the focus not being as sharp, I feel like there's more depth to the image, where something could be soft in the foreground and something could be f uh, soft in the background, but the, the thing that you're focused on isn't so sharp that you feel the delineation between these different planes. And I feel for some reason the digital media creates this feeling of flatness because it makes everything feel sharp in itself. But that's today's theory. <laughs> um, I want to look at the clip from Carol and then... Well, we have, have one more. Click Carol. Oh, yeah, we were already, yeah, all right. We're at Carol already, oh. yeah. <laughs>
And that, of course, was, that was the Cannes teaser trailer. That was the first one, better than the American one. one. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is a film that, in part, you know, is all about close-ups of people looking and not looking and looking away and veiling their look. So could you talk a little bit about working with those two actresses and all those close-ups? Um, it was very cold. <laughs> it was a rough winter in Cincinnati. I, I never thought it was about close-ups, but it's certainly about their relationship. Um, it, it's, it's, the camera is always motivated by them. It's, it's not independent of them. And uh, so I, I think, again, we, we, our experience with Mildred Pierce that we didn't want to give up film, so we convinced them that if we shot it in 16 millimeter, it would super 16, that it would be, uh, which it is cheaper. You don't have a DI operator and uh, the equipment is cheaper. Um, so um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, we, we're again visually, we're trying to reference. Um, a time period. It was late 40s, early 50s. It's before what melodrama was considered Circean, which is later in the 50s. So it's coming out of the Eisenhower era and um, or co going to the Eisenhower era. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're someplace between black and white and color. So the colors are more muted in this film. Um, and I, I, again, I shot it more like a, a noirish film, you know, but not with a naturalism, not, not uh, a heightened um, re realism or a uh, noirish, you know, angles. It was, it was shot more um, like, like you're following this, uh, documenting these, these people in their, in their world. I don't know if I'm answering the question, but... Um, so, I do have a couple of questions about Carol, but I'd rather get this discussion back to the issue of film and dig digital, because I know that's on everybody's mind, and your mind as well, because you are current, you've just finished your second film, involving Todd Salons. You've shot Life During Wartime, which I think you shot on film, and you've just shot his new film, It Never Stops Working, on digital, mm -hmm. uh, using the Alexa. So you've started that discussion, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. And also, you told me something very interesting about Carol, and about how, you know, the the idea that Carol would be eventually distributed as digitally as a DCP entered into the filmmaking process even though you were shooting on film, that you were always dealing with that eventuality and the people who were the colorists and dealing with the problems of the DI even while you were shooting. So could you talk a little bit about that? Um, well, today all films are going to end up in a DCP. But what, what, what I asked Todd is when we were in the color correction, 
you know, it would be great to see what this is going to look like on a film print since we originated in film and though we went through a DI, a digital process, which I think is a great process, especially for Super 16 and then uh, because it holds to what you have. You don't lose another generation you did the way you did when you had to go through an IP and a dupe negative. And um, so I said, why don't we take a reel and, and, and output it on film? And uh, we, were, we were really surprised how, how it, it still held the feeling of what we did as a film. Now, I, I think the D DCP, if you grade it properly, it can look as good. But, so we made a few prints. And... Um, you made prints right from the DI. From right the from the DI. We, we, made, we made two prints, and to my demise, I found out those would be the last two prints ever made in that lab, in a New York lab. Deluxe and Technicolor merged, and they had a New York film lab, and they decided that there wasn't enough work at that moment in time. There was work, but they decided over the holiday season that they didn't want to keep the lab open. And I asked them at the time what was going to happen to that equipment. And they said, we're just going to have to throw it out. So I was horrified. And I called my grip, who has a storage facility for all his equipment. And um, I was able to uh, procure the whole lab. So I did it not out of, uh, I did it out of altruistic reasons. And I know there's, I think there will be a lab back in New York, but um, the one I have is there for anybody else. <laughs> um, I mean, it's meant, you know, when you and I were talking about this, there is no lab in New York that is going to be processing 35 millimeter dailies. And once you have to have the expense of shipping your dailies to the West Coast and shipping them back, it just becomes prohibitively expensive and terrible in terms of time. And that is going to force people who are shooting in New York not to shoot in film unless there is a lab. I mean, it's just all closing down. Yes, but I mean, there are things in the works that I think there will be another lab. There's a, a mobile lab right now um, they're experimenting with. And um, I, I don't think film is going to die. Right now, 15 to 25% of Hollywood films are being shot on film and for big budgeted films. So I think more than ever, there's a trend back to film now because people really do see there's a difference. When you look at a film and you say it looks different, people say, oh, it was shot on film. And the other night it was strange, in, in the Steve Jobs uh, film, the, the th first uh, section is shot in Super 16, the second is in 35, and the third is shot digitally in high def. And Kate Winslet complained and said that she was horrified the way she looked digitally. And most actresses are because it's, it, I don't want to, I don't want an image that I have to look at, that I'm looking at a TV screen in a, in a movie theater. I, I want some, 
separation, some distance from that image, what images are. But, you know, I grew up that way. I'm an old guy. You know, younger people like images that are digital, you know. So I, I, all, I want, all I'm saying is we shouldn't limit our tools to create images. And for me, I have a harder time manipulating a digital image than I do a film image. But that might be me. But I, I know when I have a light meter, my lens in the lab, and the film stock, I know how to control that image to create different looks. The problem I have digitally is I have a DI technician that tells me what I can do and can't do. Then I go into a, a, a color correct, and I have a director sitting over me trying to change something that we originated when we photographed it. This whole idea that you can change a look of a film in post is, is a mistake. It, it, one, it's expensive, and two, you can never create something that you didn't originate in the, be, in, in the inception of the idea. Because if you do one thing, it affects the other. And when I play with colors, let's say I play with a warm and cool color, they're, 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 they're merging and fighting each other, so they affect the look. If I did it all one way, I couldn't get that contrast, that merge. So maybe you guys have questions. Yeah. Okay. We're going to run over, but we're going to take questions, yeah. Yes, you. Oh, wait for the mic. Yeah. When you shot on the Super 16, like say for Carol, and then you had a digital intermediate, do you do you no longer have to blow it up as you used to do with 35, or like, and then you? Yeah, how does actually, that work now? That, that's the advantage. No, you don't have to blow it up. You you go from the negative into a digital file, okay. and then from the digital file, they they project that in that image. So there's no longer a blow-up, which there's used no to be There's no longer a blow-up, and that, that's, right. that's what's so wonderful about 16. Right. Because I think what's happened in the 35-millimeter film, for me, I used to push 35 because I felt you lost the grain. Kodak made their stock so good that they're grainless. Right. So I, uh, there's Kodak there, but... <laughs> um, so I like to reference the feeling of grains. So that's why I love shooting 16. What we, we had a discussion about shooting two perf, but Todd was resistant to shoot. Now you can shoot, you know, it's four perforations to one frame. That's the way, because they used to shoot four, three, or, you know, a bigger format. But we now see our films at 185. So you really don't need those four perfs. You need three perfs or two perfs, and they can blow it up. So, or if you show it at 16 by nine, then you only need two perfs. So, but he didn't even want to go with that um, two perf. Now the advantage of shooting two or three perf is the lenses in 35 have a spherical, have more of a, a feeling of that, that roundness and shape that you get from 16. But I use 35 lenses when I shoot super 16 to try to, maintain that. Do you mind my asking what kind of camera you shot on? Yeah, 416, an Airy 416. Okay. Another question down here? Yeah. Wait for the mic. 
Hi. Um, when it comes to being on set and you know working with digital, working with film, do you feel that you would you consider working with digital like a sort of compromise as to how you approach your lighting, how you expose it, knowing that in the DI you could, you know, you want to go in there with a the look, but now it's like up in the air that you could really do anything as opposed to film, where it's like let me do it like this because this is what we're going for, but now digital I could do anything. For, for me, when I shoot digitally, it, it, it's like shooting film 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It, I find as much as they tell me it has a 14 stop range, that's nonsense. They told me in two stops over, I gotta wait, I gotta hold my highlights. In film, I can be five or six stops over and I can hold my highlights. In the shadow detail, which, which is the great part of digital, like at night, it's wonderful in low light situations. But you have the same problem. Maybe you have three stops. In film, yeah, maybe it's like that too, you know? But I feel I have more control over my image on negative than I do digitally. But maybe someone that's more versed digitally wouldn't feel that way. It's just, I grew up on film. But I do say this, young people coming up working in film or digital, if they learn how to control their negative by using film, they'll be a better cinematographer when they shoot digitally. Because it, a large part of what we do is balance, but it's also controlling the image in different situations. Like if I shoot something today outdoors, or indoors, and then I'm expected to match that like three weeks from now, I know what I did in film. Digitally, I don't always know exactly what I did. Now it's true, you can look at it and say, well, it doesn't look the same, but then the monitor has to be set up exactly the same. The person that's controlling the, uh, the, di you know, the, digital, the digital technician has to know how he set it up he can set it up differently from one day to the next, and then your images are different. Yeah, Jim. I want to ask a, a, a less a technical question, Ed. Um, you have uh, worked with many young directors over the years, and in, in, in your, there's, there's always been a tension, some, not always, but sometimes a tension between who's in control, the cinematographer or the director. So my question is, in a mentoring situation with a young or early director, how do you negotiate when you might know something that they don't know or they can't see at that moment? How do you talk to a director in that way? Mm -hmm. I generally don't have problems with first-time directors or women. <laughs> um, because I think they're more open to experimenting. And I think I have a great experience with very seasoned directors. It's the directors in the, in the middle that want to change their path from like what they saw the last weekend that then the style is changed or they're, they're questioning themselves, which we all do, I, you know. But um, I, I, I like working with first-time directors because I find they're, they're more open to, to trying things. Yeah, over here, get the mic back there. Guy in a gray jacket and uh, Except for I'm not there, or 185 instead of 235. 
And I was wondering if you had a preference for one aspect ratio to another, because they look you know, very different, obviously. Well, the aspect ratio I like the best, we don't shoot in it anymore, but in Europe I did with 166, because 166 is, I think, more human for the body, you know? The whole idea of 185 was a way of getting people away from their television sets in the 50s, which, you know, make it widescreen, and uh, it's actually harder for close-ups, you know, because I don't like cutting in the head. I like to show the whole head. So, um, but that's, I'm used to shooting in 185, but now people are shooting in 16 by 9, and why, you know, a lot of, in digital world, everyone now likes 235, they like it, or 241, you know, they like it wider. So, um, but it's funny, like a lot, like even in the um, Assassin, he went back to like the 4.3 or 133 uh, frame. There seems to be a, if you wait long enough, it comes back. In the back, um, next to the last row. Thanks. I have a question about framing. Um, you know, traditionally, you'll, uh, in, a, in a back and forth conversation, you'll stick a character, say, on the right side of the frame and have them looking left. And from what I can see from some clips in Carol, you know, you'll, uh, you subvert that. And I'm wondering uh, what's to be gained and uh, what your philosophy is on things like eyeline. Well, you know, we're, I'm always trying to experiment with compositions, you know, and, and I always try to break, you know, the close-up, medium, long shot, and uh, the operator uh, that works with us, Craig Hagenson, who's a wonderful operator, um, has this incredible sense of framing and letting people, like, come to the left side of the frame in a pan, and, and they don't leave the frame. <laughs> He just has a, a sixth sense of, of playing offset, we call that offset compositions. So we, we definitely played with offset compositions. Um, now, you could say why, was it just for aesthetic reasons? I, I, I don't know, I think it's, it's, it's just kind of an intuitive thing of trying to play with the way of showing visual grammar in a way that connects the audience to these characters, you know. And, and I guess what it is for me is the um, spatial relationship in the frame has a lot to do with the environment that I'm shooting the people and where I'm shooting them. So I'm, I'm very much interested in the composition in the frame of what's around the person. And that dictates to me a lot of time what the frame is for the person rather than um, situating them in a specific frame no matter what the environment is. So I think that dictates a lot of times what the image is. And I, I know like in the, in the scene where Carol goes with um, Rooney to, the, to that uh, restaurant early in the film, the compositions are offset. Well, we partly did it because we loved the way the extras looked in the background and the painting on the wall and we just played with it, you know. Someone else? Question? In the back on that? Yeah. Hi. Uh, I've noticed that when, say, a Cirque movie gets transferred to video, it still has a certain, I don't know, weight, deeper blacks and that kind of thing. 
and uh, modern film stock is different. I guess it's lower contrast or something. Could you? And it looks fine when you when you project it, but it does look different at, at, on, on video. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the challenges of using modern stock to create a period look? Well, I, I think that's part of the reason why we use sixteen. You know, and and um, and then also playing with the jet. Like what I did is I limited the color palette of the film. In other words, I shot with a lot of magenta and greens and yellows. And so I wasn't using saturated colors in the set, you know, or in the gels. So I was trying to shift the color uh, spectrum of the film that, you know, Kodak has a much more saturated palette. You know, we've lost Fuji. I used to like Fuji for certain, you know, parts of films. When I shot Mississippi Masala, I shot Africa in Fuji and America or the South in Kodak because I wanted the more muted colors. But you can get that out of Kodak. You just have to play with the, the what you're putting in front of the lens. I, I never like to put anything in front of the lens because if you put a, a filter in front of the lens, it changes everything. But if I do it in the lights or in the, in the set, then I have modulation of different color and looks in the same frame. Now what we did do, which sometimes helps that feeling is, a lot of times, we're shoot, like you said, we're shooting through glass or plexiglass, but what we found on the location, we didn't bring it in to shoot through it, but we like that scene where Carol is sitting writing at the cafe or the coffee shop. That was like a really dingy, scratched plastic, you know, um, storefront, and we we just shot through it. You know, is Todd's very open to you know playing that way. Maybe one more, if there is one more. Yeah. One of the things I, I really loved about um, Far From Heaven is, I think it comes toward the end, and it's Dennis Quaid and I guess the guy he's involved with, and they're just in this room. And I mean, it was beautiful, but it was, I just remember feeling like such a, an emotional sense of just real like depression and sadness at like what was going to happen to him and, and that, that had so much to do with your lighting so I just wanted to just express that and maybe you could talk about mm -hmm. I don't know <laughs> what went into the lighting for that because it was great like I say you know the design of the shots and the lighting and the, and the, the mood is creating for the viewer um, what the emotional impact is for the character. And um, that's the strength of images, is that they can uh, create a world for the viewer to respond to the emotions of the character. And it's a nonverbal level, and that's why I think it's so strong. You know, and in Europe, I, I wanted to say this, and I'm glad I remembered it, in Europe, many scripts are written much different than our scripts. Scripts are written here purely by dialogue. 
And many scripts that I've been involved with in Europe, like for Ulrich Seidel, I've worked with Bertolucci, with Werner Herzog, Wim Wenders, they write description. They're, it's not based on dialogue. I mean, not to say that dialogue doesn't play in it, but they'll write pages about where this location is, what the setting is, uh, how it should feel. And I, I think, I've thought about it a lot, why our, our culture is, is so rooted in the word. And I, I think we come out of like 19th century novels. And um, we, we also don't deal with irony very well. But I think until abstract expressionism, we didn't really have a visual code um, that was recognized, you know, internationally. And, um, and I just think Europe has a, a longer tradition visually through painting that creates the language of them telling their stories. And that's, I, when I was younger, I think I only saw films that had subtitles. I didn't know they spoke English. I'm kidding, but. So what do Todd Haynes' scripts look like? He, they're written, but he also writes another script talking about imagery. And, and I spend a lot of time with him uh, in pre-production. Uh, he, he does visual references, and he does a, a lookbook that creates images. I should have maybe brought it, but he does a wonderful lookbook of, of collecting images. And a lot of directors do, but he's so knowledgeable in imagery and ideas about images. And, and I think you're only as good as the references you use. You know, it's, if everybody uses the same references, we're all gonna end up with the same look. You know, like everybody's gonna do the Hopper look. You know, sure, we reference the Hopper painting, the Usher, you know, when he sees it, the steps. All right, but I'm just saying, it, the whole thing isn't about Hopper, you know, but Anyway. Thank you, Ed Luckman. Thank you all. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.